Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be with you uh, and hearing all these different accents around and uh, I don't know, about 50 nationalities represented here, I understand. Uh, I need to let you know, if you don't know us uh, any more than what Mac has just shared, that I was born in Malaysia uh, and I grew up in Singapore before uh, doing some more growing up in Australia and so my accent is very different depending on who I speak to. Um, (laughs) So if it changes as I look at you, please forgive me. I'm not meaning that intentionally. It just happens. There's an automatic switch uh, in my head. uh, And there is no greater place to be than in a congregation like this, which is such a foreshadow of the heavenly reality where we will see people from every nation, tribe, and language before our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Being a Christian is the best passport in the world, is it not? And so to be with you is an enormous privilege for us, our family, And so as we come to the word of God, which is the most important thing we can do, of course, uh, please uh, join with me as we pray to our great Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to gather here this morning, to hear you speak to us in your word. Please, Father, teach us this very morning to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom and live life for you and for your pleasure. And we pray this for Jesus' most precious sake. Amen. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the life expectancy in the UAE is 76.74 years. Did you know that? In Qatar, it's 79. Sorry, 78.25 years. In Saudi Arabia, it's 74.06 years. In Australia, it happens to be 79.1 years. It's just a little longer than you. Uh, that's despite the fact that we live in a place which has the deadliest snakes in the world. You can get eaten by sharks just by swimming at a beach and the spiders can kill you within... Anyway, I won't go on. (laughs) But somehow we have a slightly greater life expectancy, but it's not that much more, is it? If God grants you anything close to the 80 years of life in this world, how will you use it? How will you make your life count I mean, that's why we're here today, I take it. And I'm thankful to God that you are here this morning. And I want to spend the next few moments looking at what is Moses' prayer from Psalm 90 in the Bible. Psalm 90. And I think it's going to come up on the screen. And what I'd love to do with you is actually to read the entire psalm first and then come back and look at it more closely together. So it's there on the screens, but if you've got it in your Bibles, please look at it. And it actually begins uh, in a section just before verse 1, and it's actually the title in the psalm. So you have it in your Bibles, it's the title, but unlike any other part of the Bible, the title in the psalms is actually part of the actual Bible. Uh, Everywhere else, it's probably a human commentary as to what it is, but in this, in the Psalms, it's always part of the Bible. It's there in the original Hebrew language of the Old Testament. So I'm going to read that section and then from verse 1. Okay? So it begins like this. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Then it begins verse 1. Follow it with me. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. 
For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Teach us to number our days. In other words, teach us to be real about the brevity of our lives and so live wisely. Help us to make our lives count until the day we take our very last breath. Make it count, Lord. That's what Moses is praying in this psalm. Now, what does that mean? See, God willing, you will leave here with a greater conviction of what this might especially mean for your life. And please know that every time we meet in church, Friday by Friday, here in the UAE, it's not as if you hear the word of God simply to carry you on for another week until you reach the next Friday. Every time you hear the word of God, it's meant to actually enrich you, to satisfy you, to fill you, to nourish you for a lifetime not just for the next week. And no more so, especially as we come to this psalm. But when we come to this psalm, for those of us who don't know a lot about how the Bible is set up and certainly the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is known as the Psalter and is actually broken up into five books, the book of Psalms. You may or may not know that. And Psalm 90 actually begins book four. So we're kind of four-fifths of the way through the book of Psalms. Right. And what is quite interesting is that at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, in Psalm 1, we learn of the blessed man and what the blessed life looks like. And Psalm 2, we learn about the Son of God, the one who is descended from David. He's not immediately speaking of Jesus, even though we know of this title, the Son of God, but he's speaking about every son who sits on the throne of King David, who actually has the title Son of God. And he will rule over the then known nations of the world. So the Son of God is a title that belongs to every king of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. But who better to be the Son of God than God the Son, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's how the Psalter begins, with these great and precious promises of what the blessed life looks like and what the Son of God will do in ruling the nations forever. And as you work through the books of the Bible, it seems uncanny that we read so many Psalms written by David, of course, the one to whom God made precious promises regarding his son and his grandsons and the generations that were to come, that they were to rule the then known world. Because as we know, David's life was not all that great at one level. He went through persecution and trial as King Saul sought to murder him, you might recall. And so many of the Psalms written up to that point, up to Psalm 90, deal with David's life, deal with including his sin against God and with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. So as you work through the book of the Psalms, it starts to present a situation of the life that seems to unravel and the sinfulness of King David. 
And it's anything but what was promised back in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And when you get to Psalm 89, you read verses like this. Listen carefully in Psalm 89 and verse 38, right? The Psalm just before Psalm 90. This is all just putting Psalm 90 in its context. In Psalm 89 and verse 38, we read these words. If you have your Bible, have a look, please. Verse 38 of Psalm 89. It should be just a page before. Words like this. But now, God, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed, right? Against the ones who are meant to be the son of God. The anointed one was the one who is to rule the kingdom. But God is full of wrath against your anointed. And verse 49, Lord of Psalm 89, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Do you see? That is, by the time you get to Psalm 89, we're left to ponder what has happened to the promises of God. The people of Israel, God's own people, have experienced disaster upon disaster, ending in division, destruction and exile. So book four of the book of Psalms then reminds us of the foundational realities of the people of God. Because, you see, it goes back to a time before there was a king, Psalm 90. It goes back to a time before there was a temple of God. It goes back to a time before there was a royal city of God. Even before Israel had a land. By going back to Moses, we are reminded that Israel's ultimate security, Israel's ultimate stability of the whole world, Israel's ultimate dependence upon God must not be on King David, but on God himself. And his reign. Do you see? We're going back now to a time of Moses. When Moses prays in this psalm. So what are these foundational realities that are set here in Psalm 90 that will teach us to number our days? What are they? Well, if you go back to verse 1 of Psalm 90, which I think you can see on the screen, we read these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. When Moses led the people of Israel in the wilderness, they did not have a physical dwelling place as such, but a spiritual dwelling place in God. It was God who led them through the desert. It was God who provided food and water for them. It was God who ensured that their sandals didn't wear out. It was God who protected them from the harsh weather and from the wild enemies in the desert. It was God who was their refuge. It was God who was their ultimate dwelling place. It was all God who they had to rely upon. It wasn't a king, a king like all the other nations had. It was God And the reason he was their dwelling place was because he is immortal, unlike the other kings. You see there in verse 2 of Psalm 90? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. If you're taking notes, here's the big point, the first big point amongst five or six. First point, he is the immortal God. He is the immortal God. That is, he created everything. And before he even said, let there be light, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. That is mind-blowing if you think about it. He has no beginning. You know, when a child asks, who made God? Well, it's a non-question, but how do you answer your child? He has no beginning. He has no end. He is immortal. He is the great I am. I will be who I will be, he says to Moses. That is my name, I am. Everything in this universe, from the mountains to the molecules, from the galaxies to the genomes, has a beginning and an end. But God doesn't have an end or a beginning. 
He is from everlasting to everlasting. And unlike us, he has no half-life. God is immortal. But here's the next big point. What Moses does is recognize God's immortality in the face of our mortality. He recognizes God's immortality in the face of our mortality. And that's why we read verses 3 to 6. Have a look at verse 3. You, you, God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening, it fades and withers. And he's unlike God, we're mortal. We fade, we wither, we do have a beginning, we do have an end. And as creatures, we're made from dust, verse 3. You know, it was Shakespeare who actually said that man is the quintessence of dust. Doesn't that sound lovely? Quintessence kind of sounds, you know, kind of groovy, you know, hip, kind. It, it fits the kind of people who meet in a hotel for church, you know, quintessence. But you know what quintessence means? Essence. You are the essence of dust. Well, that doesn't make it any flattering, does it? That's what we are. We are the essence of dust. We are mortal. We are finite creatures affected by time. Unlike God, to whom a thousand years are like a day, he is immortally unaffected by time. But we are mortally affected by time. Just like transient grass that will inevitably die. We're like cut flowers placed in a vase. It's beautiful for a little while, but then it fades and sags and has to be thrown away into the rubbish heap. Our time is limited, unlike God. We do have a half-life, don't we? It's not just radioactive material. We humans have a half-life. If you are here in your teens or in your 20s, please know that you have reached the physical peak of your life. <laughs> it's all downhill from there, isn't it? We know that those of us who are you know, above 25, our teeth start to rot, our backs start to go. And I used to play tennis for a long time, and I thought I was pretty good. You know, I, I still remember, and I, in my 40s, I remember playing tennis, and I served, I volleyed, if you understand that lingo. I ran up, and I hit this beautiful, beautiful volley up on the sideline, skipped away, just thrashed the other person. I just felt good. I felt so, so self-righteous. So walking back to take the next serve, and suddenly I felt this twinge in my back. <laughs> I think... Oh, my goodness, it was a great volley, but then I lost every point from that point on. You know, I was, I was just a heap. I was a mess. I was just pathetic. You know, I went for a run yesterday with uh, a brother here who some of you know named Jason and my son Thomas, who's 13. There they are, you know, jogging away, and I'm just panting, and I'm kind of dying at the three-kilometer mark, and they're continuing on. They haven't sweated, but, you know, I've sweated. I've, I've just sweated about three kilograms of water by that time, and they're just, you know, pouncing along, no sweat. They were glowing you know, I was dying. You know, I was having a heart attack at that time. That's what life is for us, isn't it? As we get older, we have a half-life. And the trouble with that is that that's why everyone has a midlife crisis of some kind in an attempt to punctuate our life with something that makes us feel youthful again. You know, what do we do in our so-called midlife crisis? We spontaneously change careers. We move to Dubai from somewhere else to start a new life. Or, or we get a brand new motorcycle. Or, or we get a brand new car. Or, you know, this next gadget, the next, next iPhone. We've got to get the next iPhone because that's going to be the meaning of life from now on so that I can talk into Siri so that I can work out the closest restaurant. Now, that really brings meaning to life, doesn't it? Or more sadly, we think that 
is perhaps having that fling with the office secretary that's going to make more meaning to life. The one night stand or just to give yourself the impression that I can still do it. We want to punctuate our life with what makes us feel youthful again. But the only thing that really punctuates the reality of life is death. It's death. Our birth certificate comes with an expiry date. Did you know that? Unless Jesus returns beforehand, we will all die. We just don't know when. And all of us have now lived life long enough to know this truth, really. And we must recognize God's immortality in the face of our mortality. But more than that, we must, and here's the next point, recognize that our mortality is God's considered judgment upon sin. Our mortality is God's considered judgment upon sin. Verse 7, verse 7 of Psalm 90. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sign. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? You see what he's saying there? Recognize that our mortality is God's considered judgment upon sin. Death is the result of God's anger. It is his judgment upon our rebellion against him. It is the outworking of his promise to Adam and Eve, the first couple, the first humanity, when God said to them, when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will die. As Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Isn't it? Because think about what sin actually is. I've found that the most helpful way to explain what sin is is by the way it's spelt. Really? It's a small s a huge I in the middle and a small N. Sin has got to do with me, I, 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 me wanting to run my own life, my own way without God ruling it. It is a defiance against God ultimately. Remember, sin is a vertical thing. Yes, we sin against one another, but ultimately our sin is against God, is a defiance against God. It's me wanting to run my life as Richard, where I run my life, I rule my life, I determine what is good and evil for me, rather than to let God determine what is good and evil for me. For that is what the problem with Adam and Eve was. See, they wanted to become like God, knowing good and evil. Is it that they didn't know what good and evil was before they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, they knew They knew it was evil to eat from the fruit. So how is it that they wanted to become like God, knowing good and evil? Well, they wanted to determine good and evil for themselves. That's the heart of sin, you see. It's small s, a big I in the middle, and a small n. I want to run my life, my way, so that I determine what is right and wrong instead of letting God determine what's right and wrong. That's defiance in the end. So if that's the case, we're all sinners, aren't we? You may look like the most moral citizen in this place or in this world. You may help the old lady across the road. You may give lots of money to charity. Why, you might even come to church every Friday. 
You might even be someone who goes on mission trips. But you might be doing it because you're determining that that's good for your life instead of letting God determine it for you. It overlaps. It looks as if you're a Christian, but you may not be a Christian just because you're looking like one with everyone else. So do ask yourself, am I doing what I'm doing because I'm determining it or because I'm actually serving the Lord God? Don't don't come under the false impression that I'm right with God simply because my life looks like those around about me. Oh, we all know about the, the evil people in this world. Do you know there are people like, I think it was John Wesley, but check this out because I'm only going from very vague memory here. I think it was John Wesley who actually went out as a missionary before he became a Christian. John Wesley. He went out to the mission field, but he came back to discover what it meant to be born again. Just because you've grown up in a Christian family doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Christian either. Am I living life for myself where I'm determining what's best for me or is God determining it? And this is so serious because, you see, under God's considered judgment, I'm still under his wrath if I'm determining life for myself. I'm still under his judgment if I'm living for Richard rather than living for Jesus. And under God's considered judgment, most of us may get 70 or 80 years, but even then it will be toil and trouble. The the ageing process is full of heartache and suffering. I joked about it before, but it's not fun, is it? And those of us who are getting older in life or those of us who are actually caring for elderly people, it's hard, isn't it? It's toil, it's trouble. It's hard enough just for some elderly people just to get out of their chair to get to the next point because their gait, their walking is so difficult or to count the number of tablets they have to take. The great Billy Graham, famous evangelist, wrote in his autobiography, which is called Nearing Home, which is a terrific read, by the way. It was one book that Bronwyn really enjoyed reading, My Dear Wife. I read it after she passed away. I can see why. But near the beginning of his book, he says, quote, old age is not for sissies. It's not for sissies. It's hard work. But nor is death. Nor is the dying process. As Mac mentioned, my beautiful wife was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer in December 2009. She was a healthy, healthy, healthy 48-year-old. And it was paralyzing just to see her body decay over those three years. But as we reflected on it, we realized, Bron and I, and Bron especially, realized that this sentence of death is what We've been preparing for all our lives since we became Christians. When we started at that very point, stopped living for ourselves, but started living for Jesus because of his grace and mercy poured out upon us. It wasn't anything that we did. It was all that what Jesus had done for us that saved us. But when we recognized that that was what we were saved for, to live for him, that really it was preparing us for death. We're all under the sentence of death because we are in Adam. We all deserve to die because sin is serious. If I defy Almighty God and say, I want to run my own life my own way without you, God's going to say, well, I'm going to give you exactly what you want, which is life without me. And life without me is life without the giver of life. And that is no life, that is death. Even in this life that we live while we breathe, there is still death, as it were. It's spiritual death. Because we think we're going to be satisfied with things in this world, but we're not. It's only Jesus who satisfies more of that later on. We're still spiritually dead now, even if we're physically breathing and our hearts are healthy and our lives are fit. 
But if we become Christians, it prepares us for death. The only difference between your death, my death and Bronwyn's death is timing. She was the first one to admit that she contributed her fair share to the sins of the human race and therefore deserved to die. Do you believe this? Is this true of your life? Do you believe that you deserve to die because of your sins? Do you really believe that your days are numbered? Do you really believe that your mortality is God's considered judgment upon sin? Do you? Because unless you do, you will never be wise. Never. Because Moses was wise. That's why he prays. Verse 12. The very famous verses. The verse that I'm sure many of us know off by heart. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Please teach us to number our days. In other words, please make our brief life count. Live each day as if it were your last day. If this is going to be your last day ever, how would you live your life? How would it change? Well, the things that matter is what you're going to do, isn't it? Our dear brother Jason gave me the privilege of meeting with Melinda, who we prayed for, who lives with Mac and Leanne. She almost got killed last Saturday, just crossing a pedestrian crossing. Do you think it entered her mind that she was going to be you know, run into by a car on that day? I mean, your life could be taken from you at any moment, couldn't it? Yet in God's kindness, she broke the femur, that bone in her leg. In seeing her yesterday, though, her life is still so joyful. She prayed with us and what she longs most of all is for so many of her friends. And I'm sure you are here if you are here. I understand that she keeps inviting her friends, especially from the wonderful community amongst our Filipino friends and brothers and sisters. She just longs for people to come to know the Lord Jesus as she has come to know the Lord Jesus even this year. She knows how to number her days. She knows how to make her life count. And wait for it, she was thankful that she was in hospital even with a broken leg that's being repaired because it gave her the opportunity to show and witness to the people in the ward as well as to the doctors what it is that God has done in her life. That's making your life count, isn't it? You think you'd be that way? Oh, thank you, Lord, that my leg is broken and I'm now in hospital. My wife wrote an article. You can look it up if you want to. Just look up Bronwyn Chin or AFES website. AFES, Bronwyn Chin, something like that. And she wrote an article called Thank God for Cancer. Even though it was the worst possible cancer you could ever get, She was grateful to God for how it changed her life and affected us as a family. And as she died, she became more and more beautiful. People who visited her came to care for her, but I can't tell you the number of people who actually came up to me and said they felt cared for instead of feeling like as if they were caring for her because she was just interested in their life. She wanted... She was concerned that they weren't going to be too concerned for her. The only thing that she was sad about was leaving us without her. Not for herself. She had no self-pity. God helped her make her life count and to live each day as if it was her final day until that Resurrection Sunday this last year in March. And therefore, you make your plans prayerfully, don't you? If you're going to make your life count. You know that verse in James chapter 4? If you're taking notes, just write it down. James chapter 4, verse 13 
to 15. But let me read it to you because this is what comes to mind now when James says to the people he writes to, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. That kind of sounds like Dubai, doesn't it? Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you see what he's saying? Oh, you can make your plans, but you have no idea what is actually going to happen. You have no idea at all. I was just speaking at this cross-conference uh, that was spoken about. It was actually in a Q&A time uh, after a breakout session. I so, I'm sorry, this, this is a complete aside. I, I'm always laughing when in those big conferences they call it a breakout session because a breakout, oh, you know, I pictured 20, 30 people, intimate gathering. There were 470 people at my breakout session. So it ended up being a talk. So this Q&A kind of happened with me kind of shouting to this massive group. But anyway, you know, one of the questions was, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it had to do with you know, weddings and, and marriage, of course. Love, sex and marriage, as university students always ask about. You know, and they want to know, how do I know that this person is the one that I'm going to marry? What is the will of God in my life? And so on. I said, and I, my answer to their question is, you have no idea who it is that you're going to marry until you say, I will, on the wedding day. And they said, what? He said, I know, I'm engaged. I said, well, you don't know, do you? They said, but I'm engaged. I've done all this marriage preparation. And I had to tell them the sad story of a particular couple. Uh, They wanted to make it fairly fancy, so they did, and she caught a helicopter to the the wedding. But sadly, the the helicopter actually crashed and she died. Oh, you can make big plans, can't you? But you have no idea what's going to happen. No idea. It was the will of God for them to get married? No, it wasn't. How do you know what the will of God is? Well, so often it's kind of retrospective. (laughs) But I can tell you what the will of God is. It's very clear in the scriptures. Look up 1 Thessalonians 4. The will of God is that you be holy. That's pretty clear. Holy in the sexual arena in 1 Thessalonians 4 in particular. You just look up the will of God in the Bible. Look there for the first instance. Don't worry about the specifics of who I'm going to marry or how many grandchildren I'm going to have or what career am I going to go to. Look at the will of God in the scriptures first and foremost. You have no idea about how your plans are going to proceed, your human plans, but you live each day as if it's going to be your last day and you do what matters most today, won't you? Final point for Moses, making our lives count. Include, well, this has got three sub-points, last point. But the first sub-point is, what does it mean to make your life count? Firstly, the last point with three sub-points, the first sub-point, be satisfied with God's steadfast love. That's how you make your life count. Be satisfied, firstly, with God's steadfast love. Verse 14 of Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Right? Satisfy us with God's steadfast love. That's what Moses prays for. The trouble is that we look for satisfaction by longing for the right spouse or the right job or the right career or owning the right house or having the right number of children, getting them into the right schools. We think that's going to satisfy us or getting them into the right degrees in university or going to the best universities that we can get to. We think that's going to satisfy us and satisfy them. We think that pursuing the right hobbies is going to satisfy us the dream holiday is going to satisfy us. Even in ministry, right? those of us who are involved in ministry, full-time ministry, sometimes we think it's going to be satisfying if we're invited to the top conferences and speak with the best speakers of the world. And that's what's going to actually satisfy us in the end. But none of these things will ultimately satisfy us. Only 
God's steadfast love will. For Moses, God's steadfast love, of course, was seen supremely as God saved his people from slavery in Egypt and judged their oppressors. Because God had promised that he would rescue them out of the yoke of slavery, and it was realized. For us, God's steadfast love, of course, is supremely seen in the cross of Christ. I'll come back to that very quickly, but the scriptures also say in the New Testament, for those of us who are Christians, 1 John chapter 3, I think, or chapter 4, verse 1, near there, at the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we can be called children of God. Behold what manner of love. You know, the original actually says, in the Greek New Testament, the original actually says, from what country is this love? I love saying that in Dubai because there's so many countries represented here. But just think of a foreign country. In other words, this love is out of this place. This love is foreign. This love is ethnic. This love is out of this world. This love is uncomprehensible because... I am a child of God. I can roll that word around in my mouth, Father. I can call God Father as no one from any other religion can. I can call the Lord of this universe who is immortal, who has no beginning and no end, Father. And when I grasp that, prayer comes naturally. Don't worry about the details of the prayer as it were. Why does the Lord Jesus begin his prayer that he models, that he teaches? Our Father in heaven. That's not a small thing. And that is a mark of God's love. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. That's the first mark. But of course, the supreme demonstration of God's love is in sending his dear son to die the death that you and I deserve. We sing that song, don't we? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Where all the anger of God that should have been poured out on you and me was turned aside from us unto Jesus. That's love. That's love. But I know you know it. I know you know it in your heart, your, your head, your soul. I know you've heard it over and over again. But why does the Apostle Paul pray, please, Father, help us to know the length, width, depth, height of God's love because there's a sense in which we don't get it. Even though we we get it up here, we don't get it, get it, get it. Do you get it? The best things in life are experienced in relationship, aren't they? And the better the experience, the more we experience the relationship, the, the love of that relationship. That's why you never do things alone, do you? When you do things alone, you don't get to share the experience. <clears throat> and so you never play golf alone because if you get a hole in one, you've got no one to share the experience with. <laughs> the worst things in life are where there's a lack of relationship. When the girl of your dream says no, it hurts, doesn't it? When the boy of your dream says no, it hurts. And that's why it's so painful when there's Divorce. And I know that in a crowd this size, you would have experienced it one way or another, whether yourself or family or friends, and it is just so painful, and I'm so, so sorry. The break of relationship is perhaps the most devastating thing that anyone can go through. 
which is what makes death so awful especially. No relationship in this universe is as close as the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For they love one another so deeply, so intimately. This is something else that is just beyond comprehension, this other person-centered love. Where the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, Father and Son love the Spirit, they send the Spirit together. There is this intra-Trinitarian love that, that so binds them together. That's what it means when it says God is love. It's not that his love is kind of just being poured out and being poured out. There's a sense in which God's love within the Godhead is just so intimate, so incredible. Yet the point that I'm driving at now is that our sin caused such devastation in the Godhead that for some reason, at some point, at some time, God separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is what Jesus cries out on the cross. It devastated God. That is an expression of his love for you and me. That makes sense. It is our sin that caused it. And he took sin so seriously that he sent his son. Something happens in the Godhead there that I cannot comprehend. Martin Luther, that famous, famous reformer, looked at that verse in the Bible that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it for a day walking and then he threw his book on the ground and said, I cannot understand that. But that is the expression of God's love for you and me. Can you just begin to comprehend how big this love is for you and me? If we are Christ's, that is beyond comprehension. It is incomprehensible. And to make your life count in this brief time, we've got to be satisfied by the love of God. Second sub-point. We've got to long for God to show his work and his power. Long for God to show his work and his power. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their generation. God answered Moses' prayer, of course, by rescuing his people through a blaze of signs and wonders. He showed Sorry, God showed his work to Moses that way by doing that. But again, for us, the sign, the wonder, is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, by which we are not only saved, but saved for a life that is miraculously transformed, no longer to live for ourselves anymore, but for the one who died for us and was raised again. Right? That is the miracle, the absolute miracle in people's lives. That's how he shows his work and his power. Oh, my family have had a wonderful holiday so far. Before the cross conference, we actually got to go to Hawaii. Isn't that amazing? We did some stand-up paddle boarding and the like. We ate some local delicacies. A local Hawaiian who's on the focus team, his name is Brinton, who I know some of you know, uh, showed us around the island. When we got to California, we lived where my wife's sister is in California, in Silicon Valley. We got to ride Google bikes in Google headquarters. Now beat that. Whoa, that was amazing, right? We rode bikes across the Golden Gate Bridge as well. At the cross conference, we got to share with all these people. Uh, we're here. But I tell you, with all these amazing things that we did and saw, nothing, nothing rates to just sharing our lives with so many wonderful families like the family of Mac and Leanne and the team, etc. And in England as well. Do you know how God has shown his work and his power? Ultimately through Jesus, but through the lives of people who adorn the gospel. Through their deep, deep love for one another. Is that why Jesus says, be my disciples? You'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. You want to speak to this world? You want to speak to Dubai? It's our intimate, deep love for one another. That's what, that's what Melinda's enjoyed in hospital. It's not just Filipino friends who are seeing her. Why, there are 
white people, black people, yellow people, brown people, all sorts of kind of people, short, tall, fat, skinny, they're all kind of coming in and they're wondering, whoa, who is this person, you know? You'd think that this person was kind of a local royal person, right? But that's what blows people away. It's the miracle of transformed life. That is the fruit of the gospel. That is the the implications of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. The message is Jesus' life, death and resurrection. But the implications of it, the fruit of it, adorns that message. That's the miracle that I think is being spoken of. And finally, as a sub-point, Moses longed for God to show his work and his power. Finally, he longed for God to establish the work of our hands. See that verse 17? Let the favour of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, please, establish the work of our hands. Use our lives, our hands, our bodies, in other words. God established the work of Moses' hands by enabling him to lead the people of Israel through the Exodus. But this side of Jesus, God ultimately establishes the work of our hands in enabling us to do what the New Testament calls the work of the Lord. And that, I think, is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. If you haven't got a Bible, listen really, really carefully because this is what I think is being fulfilled in terms of establishing the work of our hands. Verse 54 and following in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's speaking of death here and our transition to immortality, with Jesus, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, Paul points out that death has a sting, and the sting is sin, right? Sin, which is the defiance against God. That's the sting. But the power of sin is the law. That is, the law that pronounces God's considered judgment. That's the power. It's not the sin of itself. It's the law that pronounces judgment upon us. That's the power even beyond death, because God is the ultimate judge. That's the power of the law. God has the final say. Sin doesn't have the final say. Death hasn't got the final say. God has the final say. And God's final say is that death has no victory when sin is dealt with through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you know that you are not a Christian here this morning, then please know that you can put your trust in Jesus alone to save you from his considered judgment. And you ought to talk to someone about that. Talk to anybody who's been up the front. And talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. I know Mac would love to talk to you about that. Dave would talk to you about that. But please, please know that if you do put your trust in Jesus, God's final say is that death has no victory when sin is dealt with. And those of us who die in the Lord will be raised up on that last day. Jesus is going to say to my wife, Bronwyn Gale Chin, rise up! Rise up! And she will. Because of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in this context that we read verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's establishing the work of our hand, you see. What is this work of the Lord? Well, in the context, it can only mean the work that magnifies the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did it in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. Timothy did it in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 10. It is the work that adorns and promotes the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us are doing it full time or part time or whatever it is, whether we're paid to do it or not, all of us are involved in it. 
Please remember the difference between the message of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. The message is that Jesus lived, died and rose again. That we might rise up with him and have new life. And Jesus is Lord. He is the King. That's the message that we share with people so that people might turn back to him. But the fruit of that message is our miraculous changed lives. As we go about helping in missions, as we go about helping people, as we help old lady across the road or give money to charity and all those, that's all fruit of that will adorn the message. The visiting of people in hospital, that all adorns the message, but it's different from the message. It is said, and I want to labour this point because it's such a confusing thing all over this world, it is said, uh, and I've heard it said over and again, that there's a man by the name of Sir Francis of Assisi. Apparently, he said something along the lines of, Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Now, I hope you've seen the utter, utter confusion that is. Because if the gospel is a message, how do you preach the message without words? A message is to be spoken. It's kind of like saying, listen to the evening news on radio, but if possible, use words. You've got to use words if you're going to proclaim the news. A couple of things there. From St. Francis of Sissi actually never said that. There's actually a website you can check that. He doesn't say that at all. So that's false to start off with. You ever hear that? It's false, right? Second thing is what Matt taught me, which I just love. If St. Francis of Sissi did say that, it's because he was a sissy. <laughs> the message is so glorious. Of course you want to proclaim it. That's the work of the Lord, you see. It's proclaiming the message, but if we promote it, if we adorn it, if we long for it to grow, that's the work of the Lord. If you're working a job, a career, well, then you're thinking about how am I kind to the tea lady? How am I kind to everyone else? And, and my kindness ran about me, and, the, and I explain the reason that I do that is because of Jesus. That's the work of the Lord. So it's not as if only Dave Furman and, and Max Stiles are doing the work of the Lord. Yes, they have the privilege of doing it full time, but I tell you, and I can tell you right here and now, that doesn't mean they're superior. I can tell you, right? They're not superior. You're doing it as you tell people that the reason you do what you do is because of Jesus. That's establishing the work of our hands. Do you see? And that's why we need to keep serving to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What you do will adorn the gospel. Kindness, gentleness, peace, the fruit of the Spirit. So dear brothers and sisters, Dear friends, those of you who are visiting, whoever you are, will you make your life count? Why don't you come before God now in silent prayer just for a moment, asking God for forgiveness, asking him to make your life count in the brevity of life, And in a few moments, I'll lead us all in prayer. But let's bring our own request to God in silence now. Our Father and our God, Please forgive us for defying you in living for ourselves. Thank you for sending Jesus to die the death that we deserve and to rise up that we might rise up and have life with him. And for those of us who are your people, please, Father, satisfy us with your love every morning. 
Please establish the work of our hands. Please help us to make our lives count. Beginning this day for the rest of our lives. Living lives that adorn the message of Jesus. And may we gladly live for him forever. And this we pray in his majestic name. Amen.